We are going to turn now to the Word of God. We're going to hear, hear it read. Uh, we're going to hear it, it preached to us this morning. And because this is, uh, this is God speaking to us, because this is uh, a time where we want to be attentive to what uh, God's Word has to say for us, uh, let's enter into a time of prayer first uh, that God would bless this, this time. Lord God, we come before you as we do each week opening up your word and needing to hear from you. And so we pray that you would form us in this time, that you would build faith in us, that we would see Jesus as more beautiful than we did before, that he would be more believable than he was before. And we pray that you would, by your spirit, be shaping us more into living uh, in the way that, that he desires us to and with the hope that you have given us as well. We ask that your spirit would be going forth here because he is the one uh, who recreates, he recreates us, and he brings about change in us. And we beg this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. We're going to Mark chapter 3 this morning. Uh, We're we're continuing the the gospel of Mark. Uh, If you are new with us, or if you haven't been with us for, for a while, um, what's been going on in Mark is, is this is the earlier stages of Jesus' ministry. And he's been encountering right now a lot of difficulty and hostility from those whom he's come to. Uh, we've, we've seen hostility from particularly the religious leaders, but we've also seen a little bit of hostility from his family. And so today we're going to be focusing on uh, uh, chapter 3, verses 31 through 34, but we're going to backtrack just a little bit uh, to a passage that we hit last week also, uh, verses 13 through 21. So if you're wondering, why are we skipping over that large section in the middle? We did it last week. <laughs> uh, so uh, you can go back and listen, listen to that. But this is uh, the Word of God from Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 21, and then uh, 31 to 35. This is the Word of God. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And then verse 31 And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting outside him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Amen. This week we celebrate Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving might be, it might be my favorite holiday. It's under-commercialized, for one thing. Uh, there's no real character that, that you have associated with it, other than 
like a turkey, and I can get behind that. Um, it's underappreciated, right? How many people just skip over Thanksgiving and go cr- right to Christmas, right? Uh, it's relatively low-key. It's a time for us to reflect on God's thankfulness and his kindness and his provision. And it involves things that I love, too. Feasting together, gathering around a table with one another, with fo- a table full of food, And part of that gathering involves family. But yet I know, though, that the thought of family is not always the most easy thought for everyone. Uh, When I was preparing for the sermon earlier this week, I was sitting at a coffee shop. And I couldn't help but overhearing at the table next to me uh, these two individuals who were, were talking. And this conversation began with them, with one of them saying... Thanksgiving isn't a big holiday for me. And the reason why is because Thanksgiving also means family. And then he began to delve then into some of the pains and the difficulties of his own family life and his experience that he's had. And so for some, the gathering of family or even just the thought of gathering together is painful. Maybe they have no family. Or strain relationships with family. But in a passage like this, we see something interesting. Jesus draws new lines for family. And understanding these lines is equally applicable for those from broken families, for those who have no family, and even for those who have great families or close-knit families. Now, there are natural family ties and bonds that are important. God instituted the family in Genesis. He brought man and woman together and he told them to to be fruitful and multiply. Family is the most basic human social structure that we have. It's intended universally. And a strong society is built upon strong and loving families. But despite its common importance for life, that's not all. It's not everything. Jesus draws new lines for family, and he doesn't draw it tighter. He extends the lines outwards, but not outward in a two-dimensional sense, but actually in a three-dimensional sense, so that it reaches new heights and expands out into new dimensions. Transcending the natural family is the spiritual family. The family of God, which has ties running deeper than flesh and blood relations or our own simple two-dimensional nuclear family relations. They're ties that go out beyond our reach and they're three-dimensional as they come down from heaven and they unite us together. They're not bounds that we make, but it's something that's transcendent that he brings us into, that God brings us into here. And so Jesus shows us from this passage these deeper family bonds as his own natural family rejected him. Verses 20 and 21. As he's out preaching and as he's out ministering, his family comes to find him and bring him back home because they think he's gone crazy. His mother, his brothers, they think he's out of his mind. Now being without sin, he must have come across as a strange child. As a father of three, I would be delighted to have a kid who doesn't sin, probably just as much as my kids would be delighted to have a dad who doesn't sin. But I'm sure it would also weird me out a little bit because I have no context for kids who are perfectly obedient kids who don't sin. 
And his siblings probably thought that there was something off with him too. Right? How many sibling shenanigans either start from or devolve into some sort of sinful inclination? But I don't think Jesus' earthly family truly understood him. And we reject what we don't understand. As I mentioned last week, just because Jesus is truly God doesn't mean that he didn't have sorrow or he didn't have sadness in the face of rejection and unbelief. Because he's also truly human. And it's a legitimate human emotion to feel sorrow when we are rejected or we are abandoned. He was sinned against. And sin done against us hurts us, doesn't it? I know that everyone's family lives here aren't perfect. I know that some of you have baggage in your families also and difficulties and have even been rejected by your parents or siblings or your own children. Jesus knows what that feels like too. In verses 31 and 32 then, his family comes around outside They gather around the house where he's sitting with his followers, and they're trying to summon him out so that he'll go back home with them. And in this ironic twist, here are those who are closest to him standing outside. They're the outsiders. And who are those who are inside with him? It's those who are are actually closer, the insiders, his followers and his disciples. Jesus says that his true family isn't biological. It's not with those whom he has natural family relationships with. His true family are what it says in verse 35, what he says, those who do the will of God. What does he mean, do the will of God? Who are those who do the will of God? If we think back to the beginning of Mark, in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says that Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of God. He was announcing that the kingdom of God has come, and so repent and believe. And so doing the will of God here means responding to the call of the kingdom, repenting from your sins and believing in the one who has brought the kingdom, in Jesus. It's the call of faith and obedience as a follower. And so who are those whom Jesus says are part of his family? It's those who repent and who follow him in faith. And though Jesus was rejected by his natural family, his true family, the family who he eternally delights in, was sitting around him, his spiritual brothers and sisters, those who believe in him and follow him and love him for all of who he is. Those are the ones who are close to him. And the wonder of all of this is that he takes outsiders and he makes them insiders. And as outsiders, we had no right at all to his family or to take part in it. We were wandering in our sins. We were estranged from him. We were mired in our guilt. We weren't children of God. We were children of wrath. And there was nothing in us that was lovable or that would make him love us in the least. But the mercy of Jesus is so sweet because he went out and he sought after us to bring us out from our estrangement and to reconcile us to himself. And he himself became estranged and cut off from his deepest familial bonds to reconcile us to God. Did it ever occur to you that Jesus, as he hung on the cross and bore, his, bore our sins, that the Father, in a, in a way, rejected his own son in that moment? 
As Jesus' son became so repugnant and abhorrent to the Father because he took on the filth of our sins so that the Father would, would crush him on our behalf, that the Father would turn away from him as he suffered. And why did Jesus do this? Why would he undergo such abandonment? Because he delighted in those whom he died for and would bring into his family. And so where before we were estranged from him, now we are with him. And we're in close relationship with him because we are in him. We are united to him so deeply by his spirit which is within us. We are a spiritual family in Christ and that's a capital S spiritual Because the bond that we have isn't flesh and blood. The bond that we have is the Holy Spirit which brings us together. Family implies closeness. It implies a close shared bond that you can't see, but yet ties people together nonetheless. You, You know the saying, blood runs thicker than water. But the family of God that's united to Christ by faith, it's much deeper. Blood may run thicker than water but the Spirit runs thicker than blood. And the Spirit brings people together from all sorts of bloodlines and family bounds to make us a family of God which is reconciled together in Him. So being in the family of God isn't individualistic. It's not just that you or myself are a sister or a brother of Jesus. It's not like the average American family with 2.2 kids, but it's the spiritual family of all of those who are brought together in Christ. The family are those who are here right now in Christ. Those who are in Newburgh who are in Christ. Those who are in the Pacific Northwest who are in Christ. In America and worldwide who are in Christ. That is our family. We have historical ancestors. Our family tree runs back through the generations of those who are in Christ. And the cross of Christ reconciles sinful individuals to God, but it doesn't stop there. It also reconciles individuals to one another, too. Jesus took not only our sins against God, but the sins that we have against each other, too. And those sins have been crucified with Jesus as well. The long-standing feuds between family members and the faith ought not to be. There's no room for us to play Hatfields and McCoys if the sins which separated us from one another have been dealt with. So this is the family of God that Jesus is talking about. And I want us to explore a little further here three deeper implications of what it means to be in this family. And the first one is the family of God transcends the natural family. It transcends the natural family. As I said before, uh, the family is bound by spiritual lines, capital S spiritual ties, which go beyond and above our natural family relations. Now, all families have obligations, right? We have family meetings, family get-togethers. involves caring for our loved ones. There are even chores to do. It's expected that we'll fulfill those. Do approach the family of God in the same way. Have you considered that you also have family obligations in the church? And those ought to have priority too. Sometimes it's chores that need to get done. Or sometimes it's gathering together as a family or serving or caring for other members in the family. 
But see, when Jesus calls you into his family, he also calls you to take part in regular family life. And this doesn't mean that you abandon your own natural families. Jesus didn't. Jesus never canceled out the fifth commandment of honor your father and mother. Even when Jesus was hanging on the cross in the Gospel of John, Jesus is making sure that Mary, his mother, is taken care of. But there are bonds, though, which transcend the nuclear and the natural families. Bonds which are spiritual as we are bound together in Christ by the Spirit. And these are the bonds that will last into eternity. While natural family bonds may tie people together in this earth, there's an eternal importance to the the spiritual bonds that we have with one another. And so our spiritual family should also therefore be a priority, just as much as our natural families. We are bound together not by nature, we are bound together by grace. They're not blood ties, they're not extensions of a family tree, but they're bonds of grace that we are brought into. And the more we dwell on that, the more that we see the family of God in this beautiful light. And the more that we see it as beautiful, the more that we are inclined to take part. And there's a good emphasis here that we ought to have on trying to build solid and loving and caring families. That's a a good thing. That's part of our call. It's how we nurture the next generation in the faith. Some of the best apologetics that we can have of the goodness of God the Father is from how our earthly fathers demonstrate that in families. But often, though, we prioritize our natural families to the neglect of the spiritual family. We draw bounds around our homes and our family lives which keep others out. And some of that's intentional. We want to keep them safe. But some things are also unintentional. We focus on keeping our families tight and our families forget that they also have a deeper, eternal, spiritual family. And our kids end up suffering as they grow into an individualized vision of the gospel. Forgetting that we are not only just saved from our sins, but we're also saved into a people. And our families, and especially our kids, need to know that this isn't the only family that they have. Kids, you have brothers and sisters, you have aunts and uncles, you have great aunts and great uncles in Christ right here among you. We talk about the church as family, but do we also live like the church as family? Or is their conception of family only those people who live in their own house? And this isn't intended to pit the two against each other. The two families here, natural and spiritual, aren't are in competition. But the question, though, for us is how can we have them overlap as much as possible? How can our natural families find their place in the wider family of God? And that's important for those within the spiritual family who don't have natural family. There are many who are single and unmarried. Perhaps they've always been unmarried. Perhaps they've been divorced or widowed. There are many who have strained family relationships and don't feel like they have any natural family that they can really go to. There are many whose whose life of faith in Christ and discipleship has cost them so much. People who have had family abandon them due to their faith or even those who are are living in faithful obedience to Christ despite feeling the pulls of something like same-sex attraction. 
And who will be family to them when they need it? Or who will be family to them in the everyday as they long to experience family life? In Matthew 19, verse 29, Jesus says that everyone who leaves family for his sake will gain 100-fold. That's you. They've gained you. You're the family that God has given them when they might not have family. Jesus gave you to them, but he also gave them to you. Let's not pretend that you can't be loved or served by them, even if you do have family. So the two aren't in competition with each other. Bring those in the family of God into your family. Share your lives with them. Bring them into the mundane, the everyday experiences of your own family. Right? Most of regular family life isn't glamorous, is it? Like how many family meals are something special? I mean, sometimes our kids don't even have shirts at the dinner table. Like, whatever, right? That's just what it is. Family is where none of that matters because you're not trying to impress anyone. You don't need to impress your spiritual family. Who cares if lunch after worship is just sandwiches that day? Who cares if dinner is just something that you picked up from the frozen aisle? It doesn't matter. It's not about that. It's about being together as family. And loving and serving and gathering together as spiritual family is vital for expressing our unity in the faith. And what better for your own family to learn that the wider spiritual family that they also belong to is important. Second, though, the second implication here is the family of God is where sanctification happens. The family of God is where sanctification happens. Now, family life isn't easy, even among the best ones. Siblings fight, rivalries simmer, sometimes there's that strange cousin, and like the family of God isn't any different. There are conflicts, there are people who aren't like us, there are people whom we find difficult. And so let's not fall into some idealized conception of a happy spiritual family. It's often true that we hurt those whom we are closest with in the deepest ways, right? And those hurts happen with the most frequency because we are around them all the time. The spiritual family doesn't usually look like the cleavers from Leave it the Beaver. It looks more like the dysfunctional sitcom family. But really, though, what do we expect? Why should we think otherwise? Because that's what happens when you bring sinners together. The family of God are those who are in Christ and those who are forgiven in him. But you know what? We're still sinners, too. And you know what sinners do? They sin. Just expect it. And it's not just what happens when you bring sinners together, but it's when you bring diverse sinners together. Among those sitting around Jesus here are his disciples, his most intimate relations. But when you look, though, at those whom he called to be disciples, how could there not be conflict? If you look at verses 16 through 19, just looking at a few of those names here, we have Simon the Zealot, He's a religious nationalist. And what do you think he thought when Jesus called Matthew the tax collector as a disciple too? Because Matthew represented everything that Simon and the zealots hated about the Roman Empire. Taxation there. Matthew was a sellout to their oppressors. 
And add to that then James and John, the sons of thunder, and we don't really know exactly what that refers to, but considering though that they asked Jesus if they should call down fire on an unbelieving town, I think we get some hints about their personalities. We have Simon Peter and his overexcited personality of reckless faith right alongside Thomas, the one who doubted. Right? Here's a, a group of people who are ripe for conflict. And in the Gospels even record that they fought with one another. Right? Who's the greatest? Oh, Jesus, grant me to sit at your right hand. Oh, no, I'll never fall away like those other guys. Now, none of this is to say that we should be accepting of our difficulties and the conflict. But we need to realize this, though. We don't choose our family. You didn't choose the family that you were born into. And neither do we choose the family of God that we are brought into. Now, did the disciples choose one another? No. Jesus chose them. And I don't think they would have chosen all who Jesus chose. I'm sure that they all had different ideas about who should be included. So the family of God is full of people not like us. Or people whom we would not have ordinarily chosen. There are people who we don't always get along with. There are people who we find abrasive or a bit strange or having ideas that we just don't quite know what to make of. But the same goes for ourselves. It's not like we're never difficult or we're never abrasive to anyone, is it? We didn't choose them. Jesus did. And they didn't choose us either. Jesus did. We're all sinners alike brought together by Christ. And if we chose our own families, who would we choose? We would choose people who are like us. And if only those people who are like us were family, first of all, we'd be very impoverished by lack of diversity. But it still wouldn't change the fact that conflict would still inevitably arise because we're still sinners. And sinners always generate conflict because we're selfish. Conflict is what always happens when you put sinners together, and especially when you put diverse sinners with different personalities together in a mixed context. But conflict is what God uses to grow us in grace and holiness. That's what we, we refer to as sanctification. That's the theological term of growing in grace and holiness. And sanctification is a process. It doesn't happen immediately. It happens over the course of time. And it doesn't happen alone, but it happens among others. You grow in holiness the most when you're in regular engagement with others. And if you're all by yourself and you think that you've grown quite holy, then spend some time with others and see just how holy you really are. See, we all have our rough edges. And we'll never be ground smooth and polished if we're all by ourselves. But God uses others Others who have their own rough edges, and he puts us together, and he uses us like sandpaper against one another. We rub and we grind against one another, and sometimes it's painful. But that's how he grows us in holiness. He uses us together to slowly chip away our rough edges and chisel us more into the image of Christ. And when we live with one another and we encounter regular familial conflict then it forces the cross to take precedence in our lives. I recognize just how much I need to extend forgiveness to those who hurt me. And I see how much I myself also need forgiveness when I cause hurt to others. And Jesus gives me both. He gives me both unlimited forgiveness, 
which allows me to then forgive as he does for me. See, a family like ours, a family that's chosen by God, of sinners who are saved by grace yet are still sinners and full of people who aren't alike but are bound by Christ as their thread of commonality, a family like that leads to our growth and our dependence on grace. But third and last, the family of God also has the best father. We do. An important thing about family is that there's always a father. Now, the extent that you know your father may be different, but there's always a father. And we, always, we all have different relationships with our fathers. For some of you, he might be dad. He might have always been there for you, listening and caring. But for some of you, it might be different. Maybe your father was estranged from you. Maybe your, your father was a person to be feared. Or perhaps he was taken from you at an early age. And it's likely that many of our fathers are a complicated mix of both. Because they're, fa- they're flawed people. Again, they're sinners. But no matter what your father has been, none of these correspond to the true goodness of God the Father. The worst fathers aren't the true idea of God the Father. Not to be feared, but a giver of gifts, a giver of love who delights in his children. And even the best fathers aren't close to the true goodness of the Father. So we're brought into the family of God as we are united to Jesus the Son. But his family, the family, doesn't just have Jesus as our brother and then us as his siblings. We don't live as the lost boys in Peter Pan, as orphans. But we have a, a father in the family. We have God the Father. And in a very real way, he becomes our father. We are united to Jesus the Son, and that means God the Father regards us as he does the the Son, with the highest love and the highest delight. And though we may have been wandering orphans, estranged from him and from righteousness, he brings us to himself and he adopts us into his family. And so we are sons and daughters of the best father, with Jesus as our older brother. And then you have all the rights and privileges as a child does. You can come to him with anything and at any time because he will listen to you because he loves you. Not because you've earned the right to come before him. Not because you've done anything special. Good parents don't do that to their kids. They don't get fed dinner because of their grades. Or they don't get fed the quality of dinner because of their behavior. They don't have to earn the privilege of asking a question or of getting a hug. And neither do you. If good parents don't do that, then why would God the Father? He delights in you because you belong to him. And so when life in the family is difficult, then come to him. Pour out your heart. Seek after him and ask him to bring resolution. In fact, even better, if you're able to, come to him together as brothers and sisters bound in Christ, to your, and let your Father sort it out. Let him bring conviction. Let him speak grace. He's righteous, and he will listen. We'll gather around tables as families later this week, but we also, though, gather around a table very soon right now as family, because God also feeds us together as a family. When we come to the Lord's table, we come as 
as the family of God gathered around the dinner table where he feeds us all together with what unites us as family. He feeds us with Jesus, his son, and he strengthens our union with him and our union with each other by the spirit working through it. So let's think about that as we come to the table shortly, but let's pray. Lord God, it is a wonder that you would bring us into your family. That we would be sons and daughters, that even eternally you would have known that you were bringing us into your family. Who are we to even have that right or the privilege? We're no one. And so as we think about that, we can't be puffed up with arrogance in any way. But we just need to be simply glad and humble and rejoice in the fact that you have brought us in from all of our wanderings, from all of our darkness, from all of our fears to make us your own and, to, and that you would bring us into your house where there is security, where there is goodness and where there is love which will never abate. And we pray that as we think about the fact that we are family, the family of God, the family in Jesus Christ, that you would teach us its importance, that we would think more about how do we love and, and live together as the family of Christ with one another? How can we have as much overlap po- as possible between our spiritual family and our own families? Are there any idols that we've made in our own families that we need to repent of and come Uh, before you and and ask forgiveness for and have you restore us. Lord, we pray that you would show us the goodness of the family that you've brought us into and that you would grow us in a love for it. Not just a tolerance, but a delight. And ultimately, that we would come with a dependence on grace. As we come to uh, your table as family then, uh, in just a few moments... We pray that you would prepare our hearts uh, to receive uh, the elements of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.